Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we start with our book segment. We talk to Maya Mcdashi about her new book, Sectarianism, Sovereignty, Secularism, and the State in Lebanon, just published by Stanford University Press. And then we continue our conversations with some of the authors from the political science of the Middle East. Uh, this week, we'll talk to the authors of the chapter on international relations. We'll talk to Gregory Gauze, Curtis Ryan, and Walid Hasbun about the many contributions and insights that emerged from that chapter about the international relations of the Middle East. Thanks for listening to our program. Before we get to our conversation with Maya McDashi about her book, Sextarianism, I wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the winners of the section awards at this year's APSA annual meeting. It was a big year to be back in person in Montreal for the first time really since, uh, since COVID and to be all together as a community to see how much has been done to build the field of Middle East political science, uh, not only through POMEPS, but through the MENA politics section. And they're continuing to do great work since I stepped down, probably better. And this year they gave awards for a number of different categories. Uh, first, they gave awards for the best book, both Senior Scholar Awards and Junior Scholar Awards. The Senior Scholar Award first went to Khalid Mustafa Medini for his book, Black Markets and Militants, which uh, you heard earlier, uh, early this year uh, on the podcast. Uh, this was a, a genuinely fresh look at the rise of Islam, Islamist politics in the 1970s. It's a truly a groundbreaking book, and I was really delighted to see it winning uh, one of the awards for best book. The other winner for best book was Mona Al-Gabashi, who also featured on our podcast last year uh, for her terrific book, Bread and Freedom, about the Egyptian uprising, which is written incredibly vividly and in capturing the uncertainty and confusion which underlay uh, much of the polarization and the failure of that democratic transition. The section also gave out awards to two junior scholar books. One went to Raphael Lefebvre for his book, Jihad in the City, a rich and detailed exploration of the local politics of the rise of the Islamic Emirate in Tripoli uh, in the early 1980s. And the other went to Avital Livni for her book, Trust in the Islamic Advantage, which used a wide range of methodologies to survey reasons why Islamic movements have been able to appeal broadly across multiple contexts around the Middle East. In addition to the book awards, uh, the section also gives uh, awards for articles. The best article award went to Sarah Parkinson for her piece, Discourtesy Bias, uh, which again, we featured on the podcast last year. This is a really important article, one which goes deeply into all the ways in which research which doesn't take ethical concerns seriously can end up not only harming vulnerable populations, but actually producing bad data. Uh, it's a really important piece that I think people will be using in their courses for a long time um, and very much worth checking out. Honorable mention in the best article category went to GW alum Liesl Hintz uh, for her article, The Empire's Opposition Stri Strikes Back, Popular Culture is Creative Resistance Tool Under Turkey's AKP, which came out in the British Journal of Middle Eastern Studies. Uh, Hintz is one of the very best scholars out there right now working with popular culture and showing how it matters and how it can be used for the study of big questions in political science. Um, the, the award for best field research went to another GW alum, Dina Bashara, for her article, The Generative Power of Protest, Time and Space in Contentious Politics, which appeared in Comparative Political Studies. 
This really showcases Bashara's deep empirical research in four countries over two years and shows how she's able to really understand something new about political protest movements through the kind of immersive field research which she carried out. And then finally, the prize for best data set went to Neil Ketchley and Thraya Arias for their article, Unpopular Protest, Mass Mobilization and Attitudes to Democracy in Post-Mubarak Egypt, which came out in the journal Politics, which does a great job of matching Arab barometer survey data with their own brand new, carefully constructed geolocated protest data set to really convincingly show how exposure to protest undermines support for mobilization and contributes to understanding the failure of the democratic transition. And then finally, there was an award for best dissertation. This went to Giannis Julian Grimm for his dissertation on the Rabah massacre. Uh, we talked about it on the podcast when it came out as a book, Contested Legitimacies. Um, an honorable mention went to Stephen Schaff of GWU for his dissertation, Litigating the Authoritarian State, Lawful Resistance and Judicial Politics in the Middle East, which really digs deeply into the politics of law and the courts and gives a really original contribution, which I expect is gonna be a great book. Congratulations to all of the winners, congratulations to the section and to all of the people who sat on those selection committees. Every year, it's just a wonderful feeling to be able to look and see how much great research is being done in our field and hopefully getting them all here onto the podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we talk to Maya Mcdashi of Rutgers University, author of the new book, Sectarianism, Sovereignty, Secularism, and the State in Lebanon, which was recently published by Stanford University Press. Uh, Maya, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me here. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, well, you know, I already told you I love this book. So tell tell us about it, you know, why you wrote it and what you think the primary contribution of the book is. Uh, wow, those are small questions. Uh, so I, um, you know, when you write a book, it takes, it, these are like, takes longer than you, than I think um, people outside of writing books imagine. So this book came out of, in part, the research uh, that was my dissertation. Uh, and then the dissertation kind of became an archive for the book. Uh, and I wrote the book uh, really trying to put different fields into conversation, the field, like what I was reading and being inspired by and what I've been, the different literatures that I've been trained in. And those are, you know, anthropology, uh, Middle East studies, my MAs in Middle East studies with a concentration in politics and uh, gender studies, which is where I work now. So uh, I was really sort of thinking about, you know, a subject that has like vexed me for a long time, which is the question of the state in Lebanon, the question of state power. Um, and those are the sort of three literatures that I'm most trained in, most uh, fluent in, and, and, you know, what have carried my interest um, for, I would say the last decade. And also, you know, my, my career trajectory. And I think, you know, you kind of are what you read, you know, mm -hmm. you write what you read in some ways. So sextarianism was sort of a, it's grounded in those three sort of different bodies of literature and their methodologies. And it's really an attempt to understand and to, uh, you know, theorize what I call sextarianism, which is a really kind of, draws out how sex and sexuality structure 
and inflect citizenship, bureaucracy, the concerns of social movements. And, you know, at the same time, it's also an ethnography. It's an ethnography of Lebanon and it's an archival ethnography of Lebanon. Uh, and in doing so, right, I sort of think about biopolitical citizenship and how it is formed at this intersection between sex, sexuality, and sect. And I'm able to, uh, I try to think sexuality broadly, right? Sort of not sequester it mm -hmm. within, uh, you know, sometimes how, how we do think about sexuality in our fields. Um, so I try to think about it broadly. And I think to get to the question of sectarianism, the regulation of heterosexuality has to be really, really front and center. And I think as a framework, sectarianism allows you to do that uh, because it focuses on sort of uh, structures of the state and structures of power that all states share in the world, mm -hmm. sort of uh, regardless of location, right? So bureaucracy, law, um, the concept and the practice of citizenship. And so it's really like, how is political difference formed? How is it experienced? And how is it practiced in some ways at precisely the intersection between political and sexual difference? Now, obviously, you know, this is a really long literature, right? On political and sexual difference. And uh, feminist political theory has really given us a lot to think with here. Uh, but I guess, you know, the sort of, and the shorter answer here, like the aha moment that I had when I was doing my research is, uh, you know, I went to the, to do my research thinking I wanted to work on uh, secularism, religious conversion, religion, uh, and, and sort of sectarianism was one of the operating uh, op words. So then when I, as I was doing my research, I thought, oh, wow, like this is so interesting. There's no practice of sectarianism that is not being marked by sexual difference here in sort of the, in what I was researching, which was the area of law, religious conversion, and the bureaucracy around uh, religion. So that came became kind of my aha moment. Like, how is it that everything that I'm finding that is related to sectarianism, including how people talk about the subject, is running through sexual difference? And yet you don't really see that reflected in a lot of the literature on sectarianism. Uh, so that became my sort of, um, you know, yeah. like, oh. I mean, it's fascinating that you introduced the book that way, because as a political scientist, you know, I've always been fascinated by the state. You know, it's like we have to as political scientists and the general idea um, of Lebanon as a weak state. And yet just reading the way you talk about the, the, the intersection between state bureaucracy and the individual family unit and everything from, you know, inheritance to divorce and marriage and everything it just really shows something which is a state which is deeply structuring society, even though it's supposedly weak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this to me has always been, you know, it's always interested me also, the question of the state, particularly in Lebanon, where as you know, and, and you know, generally in the Middle East, but also specifically in Lebanon and post-colonial states more broadly, uh, but as you know, right, in Lebanon, there is this very strong discourse of Lebanon as a weak state, Lebanon is a state that lacks, you know, sort of traditional understandings of uh, sovereignty and their relationship to violence and its relationship to violence. Mm 
Uh, and what I found really was, um, and I think this is partly, you know, where my uh, anthropological training comes in in some ways, uh, because, you know, the state is also what it does. It's not only, so it's also a practice and it's an it's everyday experience of state power. And if you think about it that way, Lebanon, the Lebanese state really does kind of surround you uh, down to the very minute details yeah. of your everyday practice, you know, from birth to death, right? Especially through the vehicle of something like personal status law, which really does take you from birth to burial uh, in very uh, intimate minutiae ways. Mm -hmm. And then the third part of it was also, and I think this is in some ways how, um, you know, where my uh, thinking in gender studies came from or how it came into this project was even in thinking about violence, um, you know, the question of the hegemony over violence and what state, what is political violence is a highly, um, I would say gendered subject. Mm -hmm. People imagine political violence to be a very specific, uh, you know, having to do with sort of uh, the coercive apparatuses of the state or having to do with war, incarceration, things like that. But political violence to me, and I think that like we really do have to rethink the easy separations we make between political and gendered violence. Mm -hmm. You can think about Syria here, right? I mean, how often um, do we read on Syria where they're like all this political violence and then when they talk about sexual assault, or uh, gendered violence. Oh, then that becomes the gendered aspect of violence, right? Right. And to my mind, they're not this different thing. There's an active attempt to separate them, but they're both political violence because they're both acting on the body in very um, yeah. intrinsic violent ways. Uh, and if you center vulnerable bodies and their experience of the state, there's no way you could ever say the state is not violent, right? So if you actually center the experience of queer people or uh, women in vulnerable situations, people who uh, use drugs, migrants, people without status, the state is absolutely violent and it's absolutely uh, very jealously guards its sovereignty over these kinds of violence. So that's sort of, yeah. yeah. When you think about it that way, then the question of sexual difference suddenly does become fairly obviously central. If everyone needs to fit into these bureaucratic categories and some people don't, then that creates that necessary tension. Yeah. Um, and I think here it gets really, the, the question of you know biopolitical citizenship becomes really central when it comes to sexual difference and its relationship to political difference, because very much so, uh, you know, sectarian difference and its iteration as citizenship it is what makes you legible as a kind of political subject, but it's not the only kind of political subject in a body politic, right? Mm -hmm. uh, especially in Lebanon, where one out of three people is not a citizen. Right? So any analysis of politics, the right. body politics, sovereignty, has to take that as a central concern, right? So how can we think of a framework that actually brings all of these different um, experiences of the state together 
through a sort of investment, right? An ideological investment. And I think sectarianism, or I hope it kind of allows us to do that through exactly thinking about, you know, um, biopolitical citizenship, how it is that, you know, sectarianism itself in, in Lebanon and in other places. And I mean, you know, sectarianism, I think, you know, I, I understand it broadly. I don't only mean <laughs> the narrow sort of... Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but if you were to think about it through this kind of framework, all of a sudden you understand sectarianism itself, the production of sectarianism, bureaucratically and ideologically, as very much a project to sort of secure sexuality, right? Because through sexualities where you have citizens, and through this sort of demographic number crunching mm -hmm. is how in some ways sectarianism and states that practice certain forms of political sectarianism, this is kind of their lifeblood, right? Demographic number crunching and demographic anxiety becomes sort of, sort of propulsion. Uh, and so in that way, I do think sectarianism allows us to think about all these things together to track them. You have a very provocative uh, comparison saying Lebanon looks more like Israel than it does like most of the post-Ottoman Arab states because of the role of the personal status, uh, bureaucracy and laws in governing every aspect of intimate life. It's interesting. Yeah, you know, I uh, did like a mini, <laughs> I, I don't know if it was a project, but it definitely, um, I, I accompanied some friends who were getting married in Cyprus from Lebanon, because, you know, that's what I was thinking, the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, because Lebanon, there is no civil marriage within Lebanon, but it recognizes civil marriages done abroad. So a lot of people and now, you know, this is being challenged in different ways. But a lot of people then go to the sort of fast, quickest place they can get to Cyprus or Turkey. Now, Turkey is becoming more popular. But when I was in Cyprus, I was really uh, struck by the procession, right, of uh, like Lebanese and Israeli couples, right, because a lot of Israeli couples also yeah. go. So I became really fascinated with this sort of, uh, and I started, you know, reading things like Israeli Supreme Court decisions on conversion and a lot of the sort of um, this the this the legal personal status system and it's uh sort of lack of a secular or civil secular option and it's sort of a lot of power given to different religious institutions mm -hmm. uh and at the same time the way the state produces itself as sovereign over them through particular kinds of legal decision making uh, was very reminiscent. Now, given you know how we tend to think about sectarianism and sect uh, in Lebanon and in the Middle East more broadly, um, one part of your book that absolutely blew my mind was your uh, the chapter where you're discussing uh, these kinds of uh, conversions, where people are converting for the purpose of getting more favorable inheritance laws. Tell us a little bit about that because that that was something which just really surprised me. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, just like I, I wanted to say, I just wanted to go back to the earlier question. For oh, a sure, sure. I think something that about Israel and Lebanon that are interesting is that there are two states very anxious about demographics. <laughs> and they're very, and they're sort of 
both created uh, and their ideology is very much predicated on a particular uh, demographic uh, like uh, arrangement, right? And a right through as kind of demographic. Um, of course, one is a settler colony and the other isn't, but there is something very interesting in what they share mm -hmm. in terms of their uh, discourse on minorities being a safe place, right, in the region for minorities. Um, and, and I do think, you know, that, and maybe there will be further attention given to this. Yeah. Then, uh, uh, then to the conversion question and these um, kind of pragmatic conversions. Yeah. Well, I have to say, um, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to study conversion is because I was in a grad student class. I was in a seminar on Islamic law and one student talked about religious conversion. And he said, oh, you know, like, because if someone converts, they're an apostate, right? If someone leaves Islam, they're automatically an apostate. And they're open to like all these different kinds of violence. Uh, and he was not specific at all, right? It was just like a sort of statement on Islam and conversion. And I just thought, and I said, you know, like I know people who have converted out of Islam um, for marriage, for whatever reason, and they're not, they haven't been killed, you know, they're fine. <laughs> um, and that sort of piqued my interest in this question. So yes, I think people approach conversion, religious conversion in a, in a pluralistic system. And obviously not everybody um, in my samples kind of self-determined because I work in, a, in like the Supreme Court, which is always going to look at very complicated cases, right? Because right. it's a Supreme Court. Um, but people, you know, have uh, very savvy, very um, smart, tactical or at least lawyers do, right? The lawyers that they work with in a pluralistic system. So what I found was happening in a lot of these religious conversions is that actually what people were doing was converting to a different set of gendered rights embedded in different laws, right? And a lot of this had to do with inheritance. A lot of it had to do with marriage, divorce, um, you know, all the things that can right. uh, make, make these subjects very complicated. And then you start to notice very specific patterns, right? So, you know, there's this very powerful, I think a little maybe overdetermined conversation on Sunni Shia sectarianism in the region. But then you see, oh, you know, Sunnis that don't have a son become Shia for inheritance reason. And nobody like freak, it's not, you know, something that- just, um, That way their daughters can inherit their estate. Yeah, I mean, what else are they supposed to do, right? It's kind of like that. And, and it's understood as like, yeah, well, what else were they supposed to do? So I found those subjects really interesting in terms of, or, you know, um, Christians converting or Maronite Christians converting to either different Christianity or to different forms of Islam in order to marry again if their spouse, if their wife doesn't give them a divorce or the church doesn't give them a annulment, right? men can convert to Islam and marry another woman. So all of these, uh, and here I really think, you know, it's, it's, it is interesting and it's also important to remember that, you know, people are savvy. Lawyers around the world, they know the ins and out of any system, right? Think about the United States. We were just talking about Delaware and all the different tax laws, right? 
and oh. how people lawyers are like you know register here register there do this do that here register your property this state that state get married in this state not that state you know people um in the middle east are and lawyers are just as savvy they know the ins and out of any legal system um and that's sort of how i learned to understand conversion but also then brings you back to your you know one of your starting lenses which is um, sexual difference and if you're queer and you're not going to have children then that disrupts this entire sectarian system in not just at the state level but also at the societal level yeah i mean i think right like so if, if you're queer yeah people do have children queer people well, do have obviously, children but, <laughs> Maybe but, but i'm not just thinking about like the, the nature kind of, of the nature of this ontological challenge to the system yeah. you're describing yeah uh yeah i think it's you know it's uh what is interesting here is that almost if it escapes the kind of reproductive futurism of the state, right, and of like nationalism, which is all about, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, queer theory has taught us this too, about sort of reproductive futurism, projecting the nation into the future through this metaphor of biological reproduction, um, then yeah, I think queer people, is a, it's a really interesting um, sort of end point, end nodal point, right? And it's, and I try to say this in the book, it's actually not just queer people, it's anyone who doesn't have children, right? Right. Which is another way of sort of thinking more broadly about sexual difference. Because if you think about like an ikhraj aid, what it looks like, right? And I'm sure you've seen them, they just go generation this mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. huge, generation this, generation that. And people who don't have children, they're endpoints on an ikhraj aid, right? They just don't extend further. And it's like, I guess a kinship tree would be the same or an ancestry tree. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so they do sort of represent uh, an interesting place to think about the system precisely because they are an endpoint. They don't reproduce it, right? Although they're heavily, heavily securitized um, through it. Now, towards the end of the book, you talk about what you call evangelical secularism and linking it to kind of the challenge to this sectarian system. So what do you mean by that? And how does that manifest? Uh, that's a, a good question. Uh, I think to me, I started thinking about evangelical secularism because I was doing a lot of field work with um, people and social movements who were really invested in creating uh, a secular slash civil personal status law and uh, really saw that as sort of a vehicle to changing the political system. Uh, and in one way, you know, in one side, it's a uh, practical, like you need to take care of people. Uh, it's a practical concern to have this kind of law and bureaucracy. But the way that it kind of folded into conversations on political sectarianism and on the end of political sectarianism seemed to me to be a bit evangelical um, because it was very much about, and this is a debate uh, that is very old in liberalism, right? It's like a sort of classically uh, liberal discourse, you know, change the heart, change the mind before you change the structure, mm -hmm. right? So, oh, you can't change this law because people are just racist. You have to wait for people to, to be less racist before you can change the law. 
oh, you know, people are just homophobes, so you can't put this all over, you know, you have to change their hearts and minds. And there's a similar version of this where, you know, you can't just get rid of political sectarianism mm -hmm. because you have to, people need to stop being sectarian before you can get rid of political sectarianism. And the conversation on secularism became inevitably wrapped up in this, where the idea was like, we are trying to saturate the public sphere with this culture of secularism so that other people will join us and that eventually will be enough people that we can change the political system. Mm -hmm. And that to me seemed uh, a little evangelical, right? Um, it's, it's an interesting metaphor. Or analog, or well, analogy. if you think about a lot of political Islam movements, right, like Hizb al-Dawa, for example, uh, and a lot of this sort of argument on uh, saturating the public sphere, mm -hmm. right, before you necessarily, or in tandem, or as a political strategy, right, saturate the public one way. Right. So that's kind of what was in my mind, yeah. uh, especially that people themselves, right, like I was talking with somebody uh and uh you know she was they were very clear you know like yeah they were we were joking about it she was like secularism is the answer you know islam is the answer right which is the tagline um, that's interesting um let me take this conversation in a slightly different direction which is um your time that you spent in the archive um this ethnography of the archive just really fascinating you know kind of not just what you found there but how you found it and how you read the place of the archive in actually manifesting the state so tell us about this because it's i think it was a really original part of the book uh yeah thanks for this question you know that chap this chapter was like really hard to write yeah, <laughs> really yeah on me um, uh, and I think, uh, you know, and for many reasons, but one of which was, um, you know, I didn't think that I was going to have access to this archive. So, and having access to the archive really allowed me to recenter, I think, my work on the state and on how the state actually uh, deals with uh, these questions of uh, multiplicity and um, sectarian sort of difference. Uh, but you know, there is a metaphor of the state in that, you know, this archive, you know, when I was there, didn't have a working light bulb <laughs> or, and the electricity was sort of cutting in and out, uh, was in this like moldy kind of room. And again, this is the archive of the highest court of Lebanon, right? We're talking like the highest, like the Supreme Court archive. It's not digitized. Um, it's been burned and it's never been reorganized after 40 years after a fire. And yet it functions. And yet it functions. It continues to function. Right. And I think that became kind of a metaphor for me about sort of just the kinetic ways that states do function. They just continue to go. They just chug along. <laughs> um, you know, Better sometimes a couple of librarians, a couple of archivists who just seem to be able to navigate all of this. Yeah. And they know what they're doing. Right. Like this is a whole system of expertise and training and they know what they're doing. And then the other part of it was also, you know, to think about um, these are civil servants. Right. So they are public servants. They are um, they are in some ways. Um, 
not, I mean, maybe partly representatives, but also kind of like the first line of contact you would have, right, with a state is through public servants, um, whether they're police or archivists. Uh, so that became interesting to me. And then the other part was just the, uh, you know, what it means to read together. I tried to do that in my work a lot where um, I didn't just ask for a document and took it out and read it somewhere, but I tried to read it with mm -hmm. the archivist uh, and really ask her like, what, what do you think is interesting? <laughs> what do you think is a file that I should look at? That was the interesting uh, part where they're actually saying, no, you should be looking at this case. Yeah. And that's how I came to write that like hundred year case at the beginning of the book. Cause they were like, you have like this case, you should look at this case. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, the archives chapter was also an attempt for me to think about research mm -hmm. uh, and method and to uh, really put stress on the question of like, what is an archive? What does a government archive look like? What is it not supposed to look like, but what does it actually look like? What work does it do? And uh, how do you function in that kind of research space? And something I learned was, you know, um, archives really change in time. You can look at the same document over 10 years and each time you're looking at something different. So there's a kind of temporality and an arbitrariness almost that we have to really think about as we do our work. It's interesting, you know, thinking about these archivists as kind of like a, you know, a, a form of an algorithm, you know, in, in a sense where you're looking at a build at a room with 100,000 files, trying to figure out which ones are worth looking at. And in a sense, they, they bring their own interests and their own memories to that, you know, mm -hmm. to that, uh, transaction in the same way that you bring your theoretical priors to it. It, it makes for an interesting kind of thought experiment. Yeah. And you know, this is also, let's not forget Lebanon, right? Where there's like 5 million citizens. So even, you know, like um, one other woman I was working with most closely was like, oh, look at this. This is my family's case. Take a look. <laughs> you know? Or she'd be like, you know, these people, your family knows these people. That's really <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of, uh... and then of course, right. I mean, there were also my own intimacies in the archive. And one way that the archive kind of does mimic uh, or represent the state structure is just through how its appointments are done on this sort of sectarian basis, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, supposed to not happen anymore according to the constitution since 19, since the Taif Accord, but it's still happening down at the very sort of lower levels of the state apparatus. It just to show like this remarkable resilience and penetration of a state which is supposedly weak. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's interesting to think about this now in terms of Lebanon and um, what is happening to the state and how one of the clear sort of decisions through lack of decision-making is to try to hollow out the state of public servants as a way to save money. So just sort of not do anything and just through attrition, you know, like we don't want to fire people, but the World Bank says that our public sector is too bloated. And uh, we have used the public sector as a kind of corrupt corruption sort of scheme, pyramid scheme. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we're going to do is not do anything. And then people will just leave the public sector 
because you can't afford to do anything on that job. And that's how we're, we'll sort of come to the result without having to make any decisions, right? So it's interesting to think about what's happening now with the state as an intensification of what was already there. Um, but definitely, like, it's like accelerant has been thrown on so that almost the balance now is, is uh, much more risky, I would say, between actually like falling apart. No, it's, uh, it's really interesting. And um, we've been speaking with uh, Maya McDashi about her book, Sextarianism. And uh, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. This has been great. the Middle East Political Science Podcast. Each week this fall, we're going to be talking about one of the chapters in the book, The Political Science of the Middle East, Theory and Research Since the Arab Uprisings, a Polmaps production that was edited by myself, Jillian Schwedler, and Sean Yom. This week, we're going to talk about the chapter on international relations and regional insecurity. It was authored by a group that included Mae Darwish, Gregory Gauss, Walid Hasbun, Curtis Ryan, and Morton Valbjorn. With us today, we have Curtis, Greg, and Walid. Thank you guys for joining us. Um, we'll begin by asking each of the authors to preview some of the major themes uh, and issues that came up during the writing of the chapter and maybe talk about some of the disagreements and points of consensus that emerged over the course of the group's deliberations. Uh, I think we'll start with uh, uh, Walid. Yeah, so one of the, the main themes that we came up with is basically the idea that since 2010, more or less, this, the notion of the American era in the Middle East um, has come to an end. It's still the most powerful state, um, but there's been a relative decline of U.S. leverage in the region to shape geopolitics. And we see three components to this. I mean, one is just this idea of a certain degree of exhaustion or retrenchment, you know, pulling troops out of, uh, out of Iraq. Uh, um, uh, compensating for the over-reliance on, on the use of military power. Um, so, so that's kind of one component of it. Um, another component is basically the idea of kind of regional perception, that the shift of U.S. going from seeking to reorder the region to simply maybe trying to manage it, and here we're, we're under the Obama administration, led to, to different regional allies uh, feeling that as a sense of concern, concern about the security umbrellas, concern about uh, the U.S. posture towards Iran and so forth. Um, and then let's say that the, the third component is to some degree a sense that that there were declining threats to U.S. interests in the region, including things like American energy independence or a certain degree of threat deflation after the, flat, the threat inflation of the sort of post 9-11 uh, years. And also this sense of like limited opportunities to really transform the region, a certain kind of realism. And, and I think, you know, with those three components, there's kind of like another component that's both, both a cause and a consequence which is the divergence of interests between regional states, in particular the US allies and their preferences and, and more states feeling insecure like Saudi Arabia and Israel and them seeking a certain degree of strategic autonomy. We also have you know, Turkey and Qatar we can talk about. Um, and so each of these states seeking to sort of kind of go their own way. So there was no longer working within a larger American architecture. And this is what leads to um, you know, something like regional multipolarity or something much closer like that with shifting alliances and proxy wars that, um, that are addressed in the other, um, the other sections of the chapter. Great, um, well, why don't we turn to uh, Kurt Ryan uh, uh, with uh, some words on what we've learned of the last decade about alliance theory. 
Okay, I'm going to yeah play off actually with what Willie just said, that I think part of the issue is that I think alliances in actual practice uh, were certainly influenced by the perceived decline of the United States and that uh, shift from a sort of unipolarity, if you will, to a multipolar, very flexible, shifting, less stable kind of system and states being um, uh, less certain of a big power uh, backing them up and therefore looking more locally for for regional allies. So this, this part of the chapter basically looks in, in two directions, one of which is the theoretical direction, what are people writing about in terms of analytically, theoretically, the constructs and so on, and the other more empirically, what are the actual alliances and alignments and how things have changed. Um, I would say on the, on the theoretical front, uh, what we, what we didn't see is that 2011, for example, and after the Arab uprisings and after doesn't mark some kind of radical departure. We didn't see, you know, for example, wholesale refutations of, of grand paradigms or previous perspectives and things like that. Um, but we have seen a, a steady augmentation of these, of people sort of adding without subtracting, of uh, becoming uh, ever more sophisticated, I think, in the way we think about them. So we've gone, I think, a long way from going back quite a few decades to looking at just balance of power driving alliances to balance of threats driving alliances and bringing ideas in uh, and even budget security and things like this long before 2011. And then I would say, you know, one way or another, most of the literature touches on some version of regime security, but then challenges what those terms mean, regime meaning what, who, who gets included in that, um, and also even the security part. Security for whom, security from what, and over time, I think we're at a point now, and I think we've seen a, a big shift in the, the literature in this direction, where um, almost every uh, major contribution I can think of draws on multiple schools of thought, draws on traditional, you know, realist strains as well as constructivism, and then from other aspects of IR. So we're looking at uh, economic and traditional security and ideational threats and all these things in, in combination for how states sort of start rolling with their challenges and reconstructing their alliances. Um, and I won't go into right the second, but I assume at some point we can get into also just the empirical shifts because there have been quite a lot of actual changes uh, on the ground, so to speak, of the actual alliances. But I think that at least gives you an idea of where we are or we're looking at you know, liter the literature and how it's changed in terms of the theories and approaches. Let's come back to that because it, it is really quite interesting and uh, put a little of the empirical meat on the bones. But before that, let's go to Greg Gauss and talk about the region itself and, uh, and international relations within the Middle East. I think that one of the themes that comes out of the chapter is, is that the uncertainty of international relations in the region is, is at least partially driven by the collapse of state authority in so many parts of the region. Right. There's always been, if you will, weak states, infrastructurally weak states in the region of Lebanon, for example, where, where the government basically didn't control society and, and, and economy and the borders the way some of the more autocratic states did, made Lebanon for, for at least parts of its history a much more pleasant place to live than some of these other countries. But it also allowed you know, local uh, parties and groups to seek external actors, uh, external allies, and for those external allies in the region, be it Egyptians, Saudis, Iranians, most recently with Hezbollah, to uh, become players in the politics of, of Lebanon. Uh, that Lebanonization has, has uh, multiplied in the region, and, and, and the Arab uprisings of 2011 were not the beginning of this. The, when the United States destroyed the Iraqi state, 
in 2003, it basically uh, turned Iraq from a, a player in regional politics into a playing field in which not only the United States, but also Iran, to a lesser extent Turkey, to a lesser extent Saudi Arabia, attempted to play into Iraqi politics. And then of course, with 2011, you have Syria becoming a playing field, you have Yemen, which had been a relatively weak state, but somewhat isolated from, from regional uh, uh, rivalries, uh, become a playing field in, in the Saudi-Iranian uh, rivalry. You had Libya, of course, becoming a playing field for all sorts of external actors, both uh, great powers and regional powers to intervene. You add in the Palestinian territories, which had always had this, this issue, and, and what had become what, what was, I think, a relatively limited element of regional politics now becomes one of the drivers in that the, the contest for influence within these broken states has become the measure of, of regional rivalry, right? I, we don't really see major armies clashing with each other the way we would in Arab-Israeli wars of the 50s and 60s and 70s, right? Uh, uh, and when we see, you know, uh, regular armies try to intervene in these places, like the United States in Iraq, like the Saudis and the Emiratis in Yemen, uh, they're usually frustrated. And so the, the tools of, of regional influence become much more the ability to develop relations with proxies and allies and clients. The Iranians have done that very well. And I think that, that the the collapse of state authority in so many parts of the Arab world really does define the regional crisis and, and raises all these questions about intervention, how, why intervention happens, how it happens, and about the relationship between these external actors and their, uh, their uh, proxies and clients and allies within these broken states, within these civil wars. And, and this is somewhat under theorized. I mean, people have talked about the principal agent problem in, in relations between uh, patrons and their clients. Uh, and, and there has been some empirical literature on, on the Iranian-Hezbollah relationship in that regard and a little bit on the Iranian-Houthi relationship, but we don't have uh, that much meat on that bone, uh, as you said about uh, when, when Kurt was talking about alliances. So I think that that, that's, uh, that emerges as a theme and these, and these more larger theoretical issues about intervention uh, and about uh, uh, the relationship between external players and internal non-state actors, uh, some of which are state actors. I mean, the Assad regime, mm -hmm. to me, it's a state actor to some extent, but it's also just one more militia in, in, the, Syrian, in the Syrian civil war. So I, I, those issues we raise as questions and as framing, as, as kind of framing lenses for understanding the politics of the region. And, and in that section, we do try to, we, we, we acknowledge the identity issues and the, the, the kind of elective affinity between Iran and Shia organizations, for example. But we do try to push back against the, the kind of that big frame of it's all Sunni Shia. And we do point out that there are conflicts within the Sunni world. Uh, among various players, both states and non-state actors who have very different understandings of what Islam means for politics, whether it's the Turks, the Saudis, or the Muslim Brotherhood or ISIS. Well, let's go back to Walid then. Um, when we're looking at uh, kind of the effects of 
a U.S. decline or you know reduced American control in the region. A couple of issues that I, I think are worth exploring a bit more, because I, I believe there was some disagreement within the group about it, which must have made for interesting discussions. So one is the relative significance of uh, kind of reality versus perceptions in terms of what's really shaping perceptions of the decline of American power. And then the second is the relative significance of kind of the global versus the uh, the regional. In other words, how much do you guys see the uh, perceived U.S. decline as shaping these these patterns that that we've been describing um, in the regional international relations? You know, I mean, the first point, I think. I mean, I think as a group, I mean, a lot of the the, the main the main uh, um, uh, you know trends. You know, there was a fair amount of of agreement about these things and, and some of some of these issues we, you know you we haven't really kind of empirically tested the difference how do you get a sense of the, the perceptions because in some ways you can maybe measure the degree that the u.s was you know has been become less let's say less interventionist or, or shifted its forms of intervention you know from the you know the large uh, um uh, you know large projection of military power to a lighter footprint that kind of thing um but then, you know, the, the regional states, let's say, you know, kind of reacted. Um, so, you know, in some ways it's, it's this idea, like, you know, what is, what is um, you know, how, how, is, how is power perceived and how are intentions perceived? And so it gets into that kind of that, the debate between the more kind of realist hard power, you know, measurement versus the more constructivist. And I think we realize, and this is something that, that uh, you know, Curtis was saying that now to, to really analyze the region, you have to draw upon these multiple theories and both look at the, the shifting polarity within a realist lens, but also understand states are reacting to their sense of insecurity, um, you know, based on the multiple factors in which they perceive insecurity. And this is where I, I kind of see, in, in some ways, the shift towards what you know Michael Hudson had called like the Montreal School, or this idea that the different levels. Um, uh, you know, between domestic and state and regional and global are kind of interpenetrated that we definitely have. You can't analyze the states in terms of, you know, relative power in the way that after the 70s consolidation of power, um, you know, IR, you know, began to think in terms of those alliances and states. And that, 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 that idea that, you know, that public opinion matters, that's something that, you know, Telhami and, and you've talked about or, or the, or the, the way that states um, can generate insecurity by by um, by uh, mobilizing domestic constituents in in, in, in other states that, that Greg has talked about. So now we have this kind of much more complex picture, and I think we've seen that really come out in this this era. So you know the the second part of your question about about the the global, um, you know, it's only under Biden I think you really see the impact of great power rivalry. Um, um, coming to really shape policy. I mean, you, you see it much more explicitly. It's not clear that 10 years ago, the, the, the Chinese were, you know, their strategy has not been to somehow, you know, project military power or to develop close alliances um, in the region. And, and I think it's only now that the US is reacting to that. And I think the Russian intervention in Syria was very critical to that. Um, you know, to that conflict, but it also seems that the U.S. or under um, under Obama wasn't really, you know, seeking to turn the tide of the opposition. Um, and, and you know, so I, I think we, we, in this period we see this transition where where the where the the U.S. is readjusting and kind of unsure 
about what is its global posture. You know, what is the what how what's the what's the global architecture going to look like? And then we have the sort of return of great power uh, politics. I think coming in quite recently. Great. Well, so Curtis, let's let's talk about some of those um, uh, changing alliances that you hinted at uh, in, in your previous remarks. I mean, there really have been some quite remarkable and sudden alliance shifts, uh, or you know, whether it's uh, the you know the deep hostility between the UAE and Saudi Arabia with Qatar and Turkey, and then sudden reconciliations. And you know, what do you make of all of this? And what what does it inform in terms of how we think about regional alliances? I mean, I think uh, part of it. I, I do think it still makes sense to focus on regimes themselves as a sort of nexus between domestic politics and international. And honestly, I I think one of the overriding themes of our chapter in general and the way it actually relates to the other chapters in the book is that there is no topic, domestic politics topic, that's purely domestic, right? It, whether your topic is persistence of authoritarianism or protest movements or migration or any kind of social movement, there's this broader international context. But then we, in our chapter, we're diving into this a bit more deeply to look at what IRE theory can tell us about the Middle East, but also ultimately, and I think this will be you know, a, a way that we form the broader field, uh, what Middle East IR can tell the rest of the IR fields about IR itself. You know, I, so I hope this is going in more than one direction, but to go to your, the, the thrust of your question about the empirics, uh, you know, I, I think before 2011, it was hard to see, you know, if you said, well, what are the major regional alliances? So not the great so-called great powers out there, not the US, not Russia, not, not Britain, but the regional alliances, the, the Middle Eastern ones themselves, I mean, certainly the Gulf Cooperation Council, but even then that was more of an economic block. There were six different countries in it. They've been together since 1981. Um, and by the time we get to 2011, they weren't exactly united uh, uh, with each other. And that will only get worse. You know, 2011 is gonna jar things loose and we're gonna see, you know, some members of the GCC blockade one of their own members, you know, Qatar for, for quite a few years there, which really suggested that wasn't much of an alliance, actually. And the other one, honestly, was the one that always looked a little more bizarre pre-2011, which is a so-called axis of resistance, right? Where you have an alliance of people also weren't sure how to conceptualize this because it's, you know, two regional countries, Syria, Iran, and two non-state actors, uh, Hezbollah and Hamas, which also is, I think, still a, a, a remaining challenge, theoretically speaking, to how to deal with alliance networks and what motivates them. Of What about non-state actors? Not what motivates you to ally with them, but the other way around, what motivates non-state actors? And I, you know, the deeper we get into that, I know we're going to be talking more about the ideational aspects of those types of movements. But after 2011, yeah, I think we had a, a major shakeup. Uh, in the system within the GCC itself, certainly this this closer alignment of small and large states like Turkey, Qatar, um, which had you know their own motivations intervening in so-called Arab Spring in a particular direction, and uh, other bilateral uh, 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 alignments of, of Saudi Arabia and the Emirates intervening in a completely different direction, you know, an opposite and affecting the domestic politics of everywhere from Egypt to Yemen. Um, and then even seeing rifts between them, like you just alluded to one, you know, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates um, dividing sharply over what to do once now that they've gotten themselves into Yemen and, and that catastrophe. Um, I think we've, it's also fair to say that um, we, we're also seeing countries that, uh, you know, in that shift, the, the traditional Arab powers having declined so much, Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and non-Arab powers having risen so much in the regional system, Israel, Iran, Turkey, 
um, it's really shaken things up. And as Walid was referring to, you know, with the perception of the decline of the United States and its lack of commitment, I think we're seeing a sort of flailing about of states uh, looking for other forms of backup, but also kind of making a play for power, including what we used to think of as small states don't necessarily self-conceptualize that way. You know, the Emirates certainly doesn't. Um, uh, interestingly, Qatar apparently quite a while, for a while there actually didn't. Um, and even, we've even seen alliances form apparently for completely different reasons. There's another thing we might think about is, are we seeing each of these alliances form for, for different sets of reasons, not for a single uniform theory? And less dramatic versions like uh, uh, Egypt and Iraq and Jordan doing this sort of completely pragmatic utilitarian alignment where, where we're actually working on electricity grids and water sharing and gas pipelines, um, avoiding defense commitments altogether um, and things like that and, and avoiding a lot of the um, hoopla that comes with um, you know, U.S. generated initiatives like the Abraham Accords, or the Middle East Strategic Alliance, you know, things that went in bizarre directions, but short version is we've seen just a complete rearrangement of the region over and over again, I think, and it's still moving. The parts are moving very, very quickly. Uh, and I don't think any, I don't want to count on any of these alliances lasting all that long. Well, why don't we go to uh, uh, Greg Gauze for uh, maybe the last, uh, the last word. Um, and, you know, in this kind of very turbulent and rapidly shifting uh, system that you're describing, um, you know, where do, where do the great theories um, really still ho hold power? Uh, is this a realist world? Um, is it a constructivist world? Um, you know, how would you describe the state of the theories and specifically something you've written about quite a lot outside of this chapter? Where is the concept of regional order in all of this? Is there uh, something about regional order that these schools of international relations theory can help us to understand? So I think that there were tensions among us as authors. I've, I've always been a bit more of the realist school and, and some of my co-authors have been perhaps more open to some other uh, theoretical approaches. But I think that we were united on the, on the proposition that there, there was really no single theoretical approach that can apprehend the, the, uh, the empirical realities that we see. Uh, I'd like to follow up on, on the uncertainty issue because uh, that's becoming something of a, of a buzzword, I think, in, in the larger discussion of, of international relations theory might be too grand, but you, know, you see it in policy circles, right? That this is an age of uncertainty globally. And, and I think that the two big uncertainties that we confronted when we were writing the, the, the chapter were, as Walid said, the relative decline of American power, how that's perceived, and then something that we really couldn't get into because there's not that much to hang it on, just what do the Chinese and the Russians want in the region? Yeah. I mean, there's no question that, that, that Russia and China are playing a larger role and that lots of regional players like the Iranians would like them to see both of them to play even larger roles. But I think the Chinese particularly are, are undecided about what they wanna do. And that, and that fosters uncertainty. With Russia, I think it's, it's more clear what they wanna do, but less clear about whether they can do it, particularly in light of, of Ukraine. And the other big uncertainty is, is what happens to these broken states? Do they eventually mend themselves and become you know, 
more billiard ball like in the in the famous uh, realist analogy of, of, of states as as billiard balls on the billiard table, and and become more like the international relations of the region, say in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, where you saw except except was you know for the exceptions like Lebanon, right? You really saw kind of a, a, a coalescence of state power, and it was very much more state to state kind of classic. Uh, international relations, uh, the uncertainty of, of what happens in these states, how long do they remain broken? And as long as they're broken, that invites intervention externally. And, and, and it's not just these external powers you know, forcing their way, and they're invited in by the local players who want their support. So I think that, that we are uh, unfortunately unable to give a parsimonious answer to your question mark. You know, is the Middle East realist? Well, if you look at certain questions, it, it certainly is. But it, 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 can you ignore uh, uh, ideational and, and identity factors that, that uh, constructivists would emphasize? Heavens no, because at least some of the, the, those proxy relationships, some of those alliance relationships rely on this kind of ideational basis of, of we have a common understanding of how we would like politics to look like here, whether it's the Turks and the Qataris and the Muslim brothers, the Iranians and Hezbollah uh, uh, and, and, and other uh, uh, non-state actors in Afghanistan and Iraq that the Iranians patronize, or, or whether it's the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Sisi regime who, who uh, you know, have their own view of where religion should fit into the political mix. So I, I would say that the Middle East is is unfortunately immune to parsimonious theoretical explanation. I think one of the most interesting kind of overarching themes that comes out of the chapter is this uh, recognition that at a certain level, everything is IR now, everything is international relations, that you can't meaningfully uh, analyze the domestic politics of most Middle Eastern states anymore um, without taking the international level into account. And I think that's, um, I think that is a post-2011 realization that I think has emerges from this chapter. Um, I think we can also sadly all agree that there's still no need for a section on liberalism, which has shown no purchase whatsoever in the Middle East, except by absence. And, it, and I, I should mention that um, there was also a section in the chapter about global IR and uh, some of the shifts away from American-centric uh, paradigms, which would uh, well reward uh, people's reading um, as they scrutinize the chapter. Um, uh, Curtis, uh, Greg, Wally, thank you so much for joining us and for discussing this chapter on international relations. Mm -hmm.